0: Have you ever heard of an L-Rod machine? No. Tell tell me what it is. This is what the military use and it makes this kind of a weird noise and it causes you to lose your equilibrium, uh, fall down and throw up.
1: That's the L-Rod sound cannon. It was one of many high-tech devices that the police used against the people we're talking to in today's episode. But even though the devices were high-tech, It was just a new way of doing something very old. Because today, there is one quality about the people protesting that changes the rules of engagement entirely. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, supported by Mobilisation Lab. They connect social change campaigners with what works. Check them out at moblab.io. I'm not going to tell you where this story comes from, Not yet, anyway. Instead, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of this story, back in time two centuries. Let's go. What would you do if someone invaded your country? Would you accept it or would you fight? Now, imagine that the country that keeps invading yours signs a peace treaty. You'd expect them to honour that treaty, right? But what if they didn't? What would you do then? This story starts in 1851. It's a territorial dispute. There are nine nations basically at war with each other. For decades, they've been arguing over who gets what land. One of them was a nation you might have heard of, called the United States. The people of the US were moving west across the vast North American continent, looking to expand into lands that belonged to various tribal nations. The problem the United States faced was this. Militarily they weren't the strongest force on the frontier.
2: In the early 1800s, it was really the Comanche who were the important geopolitical power in uh, that sort of southern part of the plains.
1: Julian Brave Noisecat is a historian at Columbia University. So anyway, the United States realising military reality cut a deal. It was called the Treaty of Fort Laramie.
2: And basically, in, in in part of an effort to protect settlers who are moving westward, the United States government signs this treaty, acknowledging the, the sovereignty and, and claims of the nations who live along the path to that area.
1: All nine independent nations agreed on the boundaries. It was settled, it became law, and after a few more battles and skirmishes, 17 years later, the boundaries were set in stone. The
2: 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty actually came after Red Cloud's War, which uh, many historians would tell you the Lakota and Dakota, uh, sometimes called the Sioux, were actually the victors of. So the the treaty sort of gave them fairly favourable terms of, of what their reservation lands would be and what their rights to those lands were.
1: And let's be quite clear here. It's not the piece of paper that's granting the Sioux sovereignty.
2: So from the Indigenous perspective... It would not be that the treaties granted sovereignty. Indigenous people will tell you that we have been sovereign since time immemorial. We had our own governments, we had our own languages, we had our own cultures.
1: The treaties were about the United States government claiming sovereignty while recognising the pre-existing sovereignty of the Indigenous nations.
2: You know, they were far outnumbered and far outgunned by the Indigenous nations on this continent. They had no choice but to recognise their authority to land and people and goods and these sort of things.
1: Usually, when a nation has sovereignty, it means that they get to decide what happens to the land, right? After all, that's what a treaty is. Having signed the treaties almost immediately, the US government ignores them.
2: Before the ink is even really dry on this treaty... Uh, gold is discovered in the Black Hills, this is the Lakota people's sacred Black Hills, and the treaty is almost immediately violated by, by uh, prospectors and, and settlers who come rushing in.
1: I know you're shocked. It's almost like the so-called settlers didn't actually respect the treaty or something.
2: To a certain extent, it's 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 sort of an unstoppable force, right? These people are land hungry. You know they see land and and the opportunity to create a farm as an escape from you know poverty in Europe or from uh, you know labor work out east, et cetera. And so it's seen as this you know land of opportunity. There's definitely this narrative of opportunity built up around it and there is a little bit historically a little bit of attempt to restrain but at the end of the day uh you know the democratic demand the overwhelming demand of of the settler masses in these countries is to have access to indigenous land
1: at the very least you'd expect that a treaty between nations should mean that if there is a violent dispute between them they are understood as acts of war but not here
2: Throughout the West, there's often a repositioning, firstly, of you know forms of indigenous sovereignty as 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 criminal, right? Like, so if if you make something criminal, you are asserting your uh, right to prosecute it under your laws. Whereas if it is truly a sovereign-to-sovereign relationship, uh, you know those 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 crimes or whatever you want to call them should be governed under. Uh, you know, Indigenous laws. Similarly, if this truly is a war between two sovereigns, uh, even in the 19th century, the, the standard was that, you know, people who were captured in war would be treated as prisoners of war, yet repeatedly throughout the uh, the Indian Wars, as they're called, Native people were were treated as criminals.
1: In other words, the piece of paper that they signed that acknowledges they own the land was, well, <laughs> paper thin. So in 2009, when a company decided it wanted to build a pipeline right through the middle of a reservation governed by the Sioux, it's perhaps unsurprising that history repeated itself. Energy transfer partners were building the pipe to move crude oil from North Dakota all the way to Illinois, thousands of miles away. Most of the land they wanted to cross was privately owned. This made building it relatively easy. In fact, By late 2015, much of the pipeline had already been built. All that needed to happen was for the pipeline to cross the Missouri River. And there was only one way to get across the Missouri River, through the land of the Standing Rock Sioux. To do that, the company had to ask the people who lived there, those who owned the land, who had sovereignty, people like Candy Mossett, who grew up on the Fort Bethold Reservation nearby.
3: So my English name is Candy Mosset. My earned name is, um, how we say it in Hiradza, is Ma'a Ishuia, which is Eagle Woman.
1: Candy and her tribe had good reason to oppose the pipeline.
3: To me, um, it was just always common sense that we have to take care of our surroundings. It wasn't even like something I ever questioned where our food comes from, where our water comes from. To Candy, it seemed obvious
1: that the people wanting to bulldoze through their land didn't have the same attitude to their surroundings.
3: That I grew up in a reservation that was surrounded by coal-fired power plants, uranium mining, um,
1: coal mining. When Candy was 20, she was diagnosed with stage 3 sarcoma, a particularly deadly form of cancer. Even before she was diagnosed, she realised she had cancer.
3: I mean, I knew it was cancer because everybody had cancer around me when when I was young. There was a lot of people in my family, on the reservation. To me, it was normal.
1: It wasn't until she went to university that she twigged something was up.
3: In college, I learned from my other peers and the people around me that it wasn't normal for them to have that many people sick. And so I started learning then all of these things that I didn't know the name for yet, like environmental justice or climate justice or environmental racism even, I didn't really know that I was living it.
1: So when energy transfer partners rocked up and announced it wanted to build a pipeline, you can see why they faced some opposition.
3: I know that they were contacting the people on Standing Rock at least in 2014, and that the tribe always told them, no, we do not want this pipeline. No, we do not want you to come through our area.
1: The company understood that the tribe was opposed, so they threatened to get the tribe's land condemned Essentially, it was a tricky legal tactic that forced the issue. The tribe had a Hobson's choice. Either put up with a pipeline and get some money, or the company would build the pipeline anyway, and the tribe would get nothing.
3: And history has shown that when the government or a company says they're going to do something and take something away from us, they do, and they have. Time and time again in the past, we've had things taken away from us. Against the legal might of energy transfer partners, they had no chance.
1: So in the end, Candy's tribe folded. But further south at Standing Rock, the Sioux there were in a different legal position. Their land was explicitly protected by the 1851 treaty and they were in a mood
3: to fight. They said, no, no amount of money is going to make us. We don't care if you bully us. We don't, we don't care if that's your MO. and you to transfer partners. We're going to fight you and we're going to win.
1: La Donna Brave Bull Allard is a member of that tribe.
0: When the the pipeline was presented to us in 2014, I was called up to the tribal office to
1: be informed that I was the closest landowner to the proposed pipeline. So you were the right person in the right place at the right time, in a sense. Or the wrong person, (laughs) however you want to look at it.
0: I grew up there. I know every inch of the land. I can tell you every bit of the land for thousands of years. I know the history. The roots go right out of my feet. I can tell you where every tribe lived, every grave is, every sacred site is. I can tell you about what happened there 2,000 years ago. I know my home. I rode horses through there. We lived there, we played there, we fished there. When I was a child, we carried
1: the water right out of the river, we can no longer do that. When the company proposed the pipeline this time, the first thing the Sioux did, was turned to their ancestors. We still have our traditional culture very much intact. So we all went to ceremony to pray and got guidance. The company held a meeting with the tribal leaders. The chairman of Sunny Rock Sioux Tribe stood up and said no.
0: All the directors of all the tribal
1: programs said no. And then the people said no. The tribe could not have been clearer, but instead of listening to the sovereign owners, packing up and going home the company instead took a more passive-aggressive approach. They stopped inviting us to the meetings. I mean, you have to admire their chutzpah.
0: But they told the media exactly opposite. Uh, Standing Rock wouldn't attend the
1: meetings. With the company's pipeline closing in, Standing Rock realised they needed to organise. One of the main concerns they had was the impact the pipeline would have on their water. And then we sat down and said,
0: how do we do this? And so we did, we went to the strongest people we have are children and we asked all the children to write a letter talking about how much the water means to them and as the children wrote these letters which were extremely powerful from kindergarten all the way up to high school we started publishing those letters. Then we had the children do
1: a media campaign and we started with the basic concept. Water is life. Huwasta Wakia Wakasa was from Standing Rock, but living in San Francisco. One day, he received a phone call.
4: Somewhere around February, my sister, who lives right above where Sacred Stone was, she called me and said, "Hey, they're trying to put a pipeline. They've been they had been trying previously for a couple of years, uh, but this time somehow the, it it stuck and." they were really going to push the issue.
1: Huwaste's mind immediately turned to practicalities.
4: So my first reaction was, of course, I, I totally would be honoured to to go home and see everybody and have this battle. And then I said, I asked them, well, do we have money to have a campaign even? Are there, do we have folks? I was like one of the first persons <laughs> that they called because they knew that I had, a good history in this.
1: It turned out they were kind of hoping that Hawaste would help them with the whole money thing.
4: So I said, okay, well, we need these things. We need strategy people. We need things to go. And uh, my main skill in organizing was to go and hustle money, really, so that we could have flyers, so that we could produce t-shirts so we could get people out of jail.
1: He set up a GoFundMe campaign with a modest target.
4: I first set it for like five grand, but we had 30 people that showed up in camp by March and it cost us, gosh, about $500 a day to take care of everybody. And so I quickly changed it and we went to 10000 for our request.
1: LaDonna and the tribal leaders had decided the only way to stop it was to physically stand in the way of the construction.
0: When the camp was started, we were, we were um, a small group. I think the camp started with only four people and then expanded to 10 to 15 for about
1: three, four months. As the weeks turned into months, the camp dwellers turned to social media to spread their message. I
0: don't know a lot about technology But the young people taught us this thing that we didn't understand, and it's called Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, live stream. They taught us how
1: to touch the world, and we took the tool and used it. Then in August, the camp started taking off.
0: Everybody was starting to watch every video we put out. I think um, on a given day, we put out 60 different videos.
1: Word was starting to spread, and more and more people started arriving at the camp.
0: First, our allies were the indigenous people in the area, and then that expanded to the other tribal nations. And then um, as the other tribal nations were coming in, then we connected with our Canadian relatives, indigenous people there, and then uh, Mexico, Nicaragua, El Salvador, and then Peru and Bolivia and Argentina, all the tribal people started coming of the Americas, and then... We started getting the other Indigenous people from different places. And so the whole core from April until, I would say, really September, it was Indigenous people. One day at camp, this um, lady pulled up from North Carolina. Her car packed with stuff and she got out because I asked everybody, why are you coming here? And she said, I waited for this call my whole life. And when I heard the call, I sold my home. I packed everything up to come stand with you. Oh, my gosh. And that happened over and over and over again.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. People were saying, we looked around our world and things are not right. By now, there were 2,000 people living there on the site, peacefully preventing the company from building the pipeline. Soon, the original camp was so overcrowded,
3: they had to set up a second camp. So many people came in August that we f- they formed what was called the Overflow Camp. That was what it was originally called, the Overflow Camp, the Overflow Camp. And they said, well, we, we can't really name it that. That's not a good name. And that's how the Ocheti Shako'i came about, um, the seven council fires. And so what that means in the Sioux language, we had people starting to come from all over the place. And it was a really beautiful intertwining of cultures. It was a really good feeling to be there together, fighting against the same fight and the same struggle and not being alone. At its
1: peak, it was one of the largest settlements in the state.
3: There was so much organisation that came about because it literally turned into a city. I mean, we had 15,000 people there at one point. That's larger than most of the towns in North Dakota.
1: Then in September a new set of faces started turning up. Then all of a sudden the
0: environmentalists said, hey, look what these people are doing. And then they started contacting us, Mm. who've never really engaged in Indigenous people before. And so um, they started, they came in late in the game.
1: Did that cause any disquiet? Did people feel or question that their decision, whether they were authentic coming in so late, or was was it complicated? some of those relationships?
0: No. First started, people came in, they understood the Indigenous people were in control and we continued. They offered additional training. Um, They brought people in. I think
1: they weren't understanding how we did things, but they seemed that we were being successful. As more people arrived, the company's stance shifted from passive aggression to out-and-out aggression. Mm. As has happened throughout the history of the United States, the company called upon the police. Once again, the police stood shoulder to shoulder with the company to criminalise the Indigenous people's defence of their own sovereign land. One of the first things the company wanted to do was bulldoze across a sacred burial site. Even so, all the camp leaders agreed that violence was not an option.
4: So every sub-captain had their own spiritual leader and we were trying to keep everybody together in prayer. And that was our intent. And it lasted for for quite a while. I was impressed at how long it actually did last. But when it came down to the moment of truth, when they started drilling into the ground and crossing on top of the burials and, and those things, we had to make a physical stand.
1: Hawaste and Candy and LaDonna and all their allies formed a cordon, linking arms to protect their own land.
4: We went there to peacefully ask them to use their brains and to be human beings, and to not go over the burials and not go through the water that the people have to drink. But they didn't have any regard for that prayer. The day that they unleashed the dogs on us and we all got bit up, it proved it, that because they started the fight at that moment. Although we had counted two on them and we had interactions with them prior to that, it was the day that they released the dogs that Really was a point of no return for us.
0: I remember on September 3rd in the day of the dogs, when Amy Goodman was sitting there interviewing me, and I was telling her about the White Stone massacre. And I got the call, and they said, "Ladonna, they're over here digging up the graves," and I said, "Stop them!" And the man on the phone said, well, we're not quite sure what to do. You know, they've never really had a conflict. You know, we've been up there singing and chanting and praying. And I said, push those men out of the way and call the women and children. Stop them. So by the time I got up there, I had watched that man jump out of his vehicle and and pepper spray the whole line of women and children. And they wouldn't back down. The women sat there covered with pepper spray hiding their children and they stood up. And I remember standing out there as they were singing the dogs on people and I could remember, unchi, unchi, our grandma, grandma, stand behind me. And here comes the young men on horses pushing the horses between us and the dogs and the men with the spray and pushing the men back it was the first
1: time they inflicted violence on us was that day back in a minute this podcast is supported by the fred hollows foundation four out of five people who are blind don't need to be over the years fred hollows has restored the sight of more than 2 million people in some countries they can do it for as little as $25 <laughs>
2: To me, Dr. Hollow is not only a lifesaver, but he's also, in many ways, a fighter figure because he allowed me to understand that there's no boundary to um, help.
4: This is
2: a foreign Australian doctor that had helped me and changed my life. We could do so much more in each other and we are not bound by our nationality or our race.
1: Donate today at hollows.org. So the police had for the first time used violence against the Sioux. It was a shock for everyone at the camp.
3: And it was weird that The police put themselves in between us and the pipeline so that they made it look like we were attacking them when they were attacking us and protecting a pipeline. Since when is it their mandate to protect a pipeline as a police force? That's where it got really ugly and weird.
1: Remarkably, LaDonna says it was the police who were scared. We scared them. What
3: were they scared of? What did they do?
1: They were scared of the women. They were scared of the prayers. They were scared of the tears. They were scared of what we were making them feel. Luckily, the environmentalists brought with them skills that helped them deal with this situation. At
3: their peak, they were running workshops every day. We were doing nonviolent direct action trainings every day. At two o'clock, you knew which tent to go to. I was helping the uh, Indigenous People's Power Project, IP3, and the Ruckus Society. Some people from Greenpeace, we were doing trainings, training thousands of people on what it meant to de-escalate on what the actual targets were. By this stage, the
1: company decided it needed reinforcements. The government called in the National Guard.
3: I mean, we were literally standing there with our sweetgrass and our sage against fully armed military, the Army National Guard. The United States Army National Guard was called in against us for protecting water. There was one night where people were like, hey, look, look at the Northern Lights. And we unzipped our tent and we went outside and we looked up and the Northern Lights were just beautiful, shining over everybody. And it was just really something amazing that you can't explain unless you were there and experienced it and felt it. There was a feeling about it that It was so beautiful and it was all destroyed when the companies came and they tried all of these tactics against us. When it got really bad, I would say it would be like in November, December, January, they put the spotlights up on the hill so that we were constantly under these bright glaring lights so that they always watched us. There was helicopters that started flying overhead all the time, airplanes that flew overhead all the time.
1: On November 20th, there was a particularly bruising battle with police.
3: That was the water cannons and the people getting shot. That's when Sophia Wolanski had her arm nearly blown off. Um, when Susie Despa, my friend, got shot in her eye and lost sight, in her right eye. She's now blind in her right eye. And when so many people were shot point blank with these quote-unquote rubber bullets, Um, Looking back on it now, it's it's like a miracle that nobody died. It was probably because of our prayers.
0: They had missiles where they were shooting missiles of our drones out of the sky. They had military degreed mace. They had the rubber bullets, percussion grenades. They had water cannons. We were
1: unarmed. We stood there and prayed. We sang. We danced. Meanwhile, the GoFundMe campaign that Hawaste had created, with a goal of $5,000, had exploded. Money was pouring in from all around the world as Indigenous people and environmentalists recognised the significance of the battle.
4: By the time we ended, when I finally stopped, it was at $3.6 million.
1: Hawaste says the money made a real difference.
4: And one single day, we... Spent two hundred and fifty thousand dollars bailing out our water protectors who had been arrested, and that happened on several occasions. So the money that we raised uh, really came in handy.
1: Faced with this resistance, the company decided it also needed to try a different approach. So it hired a company called Tiger Swan. So who are Tiger Swan?
2: So Tiger Swan is uh, is uh, they're sort of the also ran to. Uh, Blackwater. Blackwater was a private security firm that was contracted during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and sort of Tiger Swan is kind of a competitor private security intelligence firm. It gets hired by Energy Transfer Partners, which is the parent company of Dakota Access Pipeline, to run security during the pipeline's construction, and then they end up engaging in these these very troublesome activities—basically uh, monitoring, following, uh, infiltrating uh, the the Standing Rock anti-Dakota Access movement during the protests there.
1: So they're they're semi-military is that right
2: yeah they're they're definitely they they they're definitely military they have you know all kinds of high-tech uh, surveillance gadgets they uh, refer quite often in, in the leak shows that they refer to they compare the protesters to jihadis quite often I mean there's a very they they talk about the protest camps as a battlefield I mean there's a very Charged use and and quite quite frankly, Islamophobic use of of words uh, to sort of smear these these protesters and to dehumanise them to treat them as though they are literally enemy combatants.
1: Tiger Swan brought with them the latest gadgets in the latest instalment of this centuries-old conflict.
3: And I know my phone was tapped into because it would act up; it would make weird noises it would all of a sudden shut off and turn on again. It would have full battery and then boom, the battery would be drained like a minute later. Oh my God. And we found out why. We found out that they were using stingray technology. We found out that you could pay, they were paying probably half a million dollars a day to use some of this. We're also starting to find out that a lot of this is actually illegal. Like there was no way. They had to get some pretty high clearance to be able to do some of the things that they did. If this happened to you, what would you think? You'd probably hate the other side.
1: I know I would. But instead, Candy has only pity for them, like they're the ones that have lost out.
3: And so it puts it into perspective what money does to people. It can make them crazy because if they're willing to go these lengths to stop people that simply want to protect water, drinking water for their kids then it's gotten really bad. Tigers
1: 1 was aware of the community spirit that kept the camps united and morale high. Tigers 1 realised that they needed to draw the camp dwellers into a fight to try and create divisions over the tactics. But the camp elders were clear that violence was not the way to win.
3: And the answer that always came back was that there was no, to be no violence, that if we were to be violent or engage in violence, we would lose Kawaste says
1: Tiger Swan decided to use the camp's open, welcoming approach against it.
4: Towards the end of it, it became increasingly difficult to manage because they had sent people in to infiltrate us. And so they were provoking everything and bringing every kind of drug in. And I mean, all the negatives started happening towards the end because those guys fought on a very uh, covert level. They did battle with us and we weren't necessarily prepared for that. So we weren't prepared for them to bring methamphetamine and alcohol and all the acid and everything else that they ended up bringing into the camp.
1: Wow. They just fought dirty.
4: Yeah, it was crazy. Oh, it was crazy, yes. I don't know if you saw, there was a day where uh, we, me and a bunch of my nephews caught a guy that was one of the Dapple employees and we had taken his truck and he had a an AR-15 pointing in at us to shoot us uh that day we surrounded him down in the water my nephew was able to get the gun from him but he was a DAPL employee and when i went to his pickup truck and i went to go look at the registration i found every one of those drugs in there his job was to go into the camp and give that stuff away and we turned him in and he nothing he didn't get prosecuted got no charges or anything they were trying to charge us for assault and battery because we surrounded him and and uh, lit his vehicle on fire. And so it was difficult to manage towards the end.
1: Faced with a focused, militarised threat, the camp's open spirit was now its greatest weakness.
4: Because there was no genuine chain of command, we were going by what the elders told us. But when all of the pressure of of us and all the narcotics that they brought in, it started creating problems in managing everybody, then pretty soon people were not listening to the elders and not listening to the spiritual leaders and not listening to the council of grandmothers who had the ultimate say.
1: Meanwhile, the confrontation had reached a national level. President Obama was desperate to make sure the last year of his presidency was not marred with scenes of Indigenous tribes being violently removed from their sovereign land. On the ground, though, that counted for little. Were you aware that Obama didn't want to have the optics of violently removing people from Standing Rock?
0: Yes. The presidents of the United States have never been good people. None of them. Everything in America has Indigenous issues. It's my land.
1: Nevertheless, on November 6, just two days before the US elections, President Obama finally announced that the pipeline would be rerouted.
2: Uh, my view is that there is a way for us to accommodate sacred lands of Native Americans. Uh, and you know, I think that right now the Army Corps is examining whether there are ways to reroute uh, uh, this pipeline.
1: Can I ask, when you found out the Obama had agreed to halt the pipeline, how did you feel? I didn't believe him. I knew
0: he lied. I stood up on top of that hill, as everybody at Media Hill and watched these people, and I said, this is a lie. Don't believe them. And I was right. I did not go down when they celebrated. I was like, this is another American ploy. We've already had thousands of years of of this. Don't listen
1: to them. As it turns out, LaDonna was right to be sceptical. Within days of being elected, Trump declared full steam ahead on the pipeline. For Hawaste it was history repeating itself.
4: You have to remember we have the, these repetitive cycles of history that we're engaged in. America is not the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's, it's a plutocracy of racist white men that don't care about us. And so I think in the end, the real reason was that they all got money to do that.
1: Anyone who views this story as just being about a pipeline rather than an issue of sovereignty would see Trump's actions as a defeat. But for people like La Donna Brave Bull Allard, this is just the actions of an occupying force. No matter what happens, it's still Standing Rock Sioux land. In the broad sweep of history, it is, at most, a setback. I'll tell
0: you a little story here.
1: We had a, a family come...
0: To stay with us. And I remember the day they arrived, they said, are we allowed? And I said, yes, everybody's welcome. And they said, no, we're Muslim. Are we allowed? And I said, yes, you are. And I um, I went down to the camp and Muhammad walked up to me and said, Grandma, I'm going to the front line today. And I said, no, you're not. She said, no, I'm going. He had a little bicycle helmet on made himself a little breastplate and a stick. And and so I went to his father and I said, I I know kids, it's too dangerous out there. And he said, I'll keep him in the back. He's so insistent on going. And so I said, well, take care of him because they were shooting people and everything. And so they went. The next thing I seen was a video. And there is Muhammad, eight years old, standing at the fence on his knees with his hand to the fence, with this stuffed rabbit offering the police his stuffed rabbit saying, please don't shoot anybody. It was one of the first days that the police didn't shoot anybody. And he stood there that whole time on his knees on that front line with that stuffed rabbit. To me, that was power for this little boy to stand there when so many people were being shot and everything else you can imagine. Wow. And the police just standing there not knowing what to do. That was the power of the movement.
1: Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Freeney, written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner is Mobilisation Lab. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. And check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories.